Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. But the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. Before we get too deeply into today's episode, I want to talk to you all for just a little bit about what the Truth and Justice Army is and what we stand for. For any of you that have been listening for a long time, even all the way back from season one, you've come along with me through an evolution of this podcast. The show started as a serial fan show, we began doing our own investigations into the Heyman Lee murder, and then began picking up our own cases as more people requested our help. The production has changed, God knows the music has changed, we've added Mike, we've got a new website, we've got new transcriptionists. A lot has changed over the last two and a half years. But there's one thing that has never changed. From the very beginning, from episode number 101, this show, or this movement, has never been about me. It has always been about all of us. It's been a few years since someone on Twitter coined the hashtag, the Truth and Justice Army. Now I have to admit, like many of you, I found it to be quite corny. And I even almost used to cringe a little anytime someone said it. But as time has gone on, and for those of us that are dedicated to this movement and are dedicated to what we're trying to do, not only for the men and women that we're trying to help, but to reach out and work towards real criminal justice reform. For all of us, the Truth and Justice Army has become a badge of honor. As time has gone on, I've certainly learned a lot. And one thing that I've learned along the way is how to better tap in to all of you, the listeners and your resources. And today's episode will be a perfect example of what the Truth and Justice movement is all about. As it says in our intro, the only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. And you, the Truth and Justice Army, represent good men and women standing up and doing something. Once we begin today's episode, you're going to hear from two ordinary people. People like you and people like me. Let's not forget, I'm not a salty old veteran cop or detective. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a prosecutor. I've never really been involved in the criminal justice system at all. I'm just a normal guy from Michigan. And in today's episode, 
I'm not interviewing Jim Clemente or Jim Fitzgerald or Stanley Burke. It's not Jim Trainum on the line. In today's episode, I'm interviewing two ordinary people just like you and me. In just a few minutes, I'm going to introduce you to a man named Paul Day and a woman named Jill Gillis. Two ordinary folks just like you and me who have dedicated an awful lot of time and energy and resources over the past several months to try to help us track down who actually killed Kiao Gove. Our discussions online became so intense that I thought it would be really interesting for all of you to participate in this. As we've said from the very beginning, the Truth and Justice Army is about crowdsourcing and about tapping into everyone's resources. And I know that you're all really going to enjoy this interview. And the last thing that I want to touch on before I introduce you to Paul and Jill is another example of the power of the Truth and Justice Army. You all know the music drama we've been going through that has caused the iTunes drama that has really taken a lot of my time, energy, and money over the past couple of weeks trying to correct. Tons of emails, tons of calls, and nothing was happening. But all I had to do was mention it on the show, and listeners started coming out of the woodwork to help. I want to thank longtime listener Sonny Levine for offering to put up a GoFundMe page to fund a legal battle. It didn't turn out to be necessary, but I appreciate the thought and the effort. I also want to thank listener Katie Ross, another great example of the reach and the power of the Truth and Justice Army. Katie just happens to work in music licensing for a living, and she has contacts at Apple, and she was able to reach out and escalate the situation for us. She's also working on drafting some clean new contracts between me and Shane Yoder with PutThemInASong.com, so we never get into this mess again. And then there's listener Alicia Castaldi, and I apologize, Alicia, if I mispronounced your name. Alicia's husband, David, is a very powerful and connected attorney that works in this field. Alicia told me in an email that she's always been waiting for her chance to participate and contribute something to our cause, and this was her chance. Her husband, David, offered to represent us pro bono to resolve the issue. And again, thankfully, that wasn't necessary. But it's just such an amazing example of what we can accomplish when we all work together as one seamless unit. And that, my friends, is what we have done today. When I got an email from Apple at 8 p.m. Eastern Time telling me that the podcast has been reinstated to iTunes and we are back in business. Amongst all the emails and all the letters and everything else we were doing, what turned out to be the most powerful reach was a couple of tweets that I sent out on Twitter at the suggestion of Katie Ross when thousands of you began to reply and retweet to Apple. That escalated the situation and got the problem solved. The power of unity. So I'm almost done with my rant. We're about to begin the show. But before I do, there's one last thing that I'd like to ask of all of you, and that is to please go on to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. I know along the way I've asked you to do this for us a few times before, but we have always maintained a ranking in the top 100 of iTunes for the last couple of years. That makes us visible, and it causes more people to listen to these men's stories that we've been telling, and helps us to gain more support. Well, as you can imagine, not being on iTunes for the last two weeks has caused us to disappear. So if you have the time, just take a couple of minutes. It takes only a few to go onto iTunes and leave a rating and review for the show, and that should help us recover from what's been happening over the last couple of weeks. I would very much appreciate that, and I do want to tell every single one of you from the bottom of my heart, I just can't express enough in words how much your support means to me.
I have two very special guests on the line with me today. As I mentioned in the introduction, I have a gentleman named Paul Day and a woman named Jill Gillis, both Texas residents who've been working on the case that have had a lot of online discussions with me, with each other, and have put in a ton of work into this case. And our discussions just got so deeply involved online that we thought that for the, today's episode, it would be a great idea to have them come on and we can just have this discussion where all of you can hear it. So the first thing I'm going to do, I guess I'll start with you, Paul, is to introduce yep. Paul or let you kind of introduce yourself and tell us kind of who you are and what you do and how you got involved in this. It's kind of a winding path how I got here, but I can tell you what keeps me in this. is uh, I really like that this was a case that was right in my backyard. It tells a story about Dallas, which is my new adopted home. I'm from California originally. In terms of my background, I, I'm actually a geologist. Uh, I teach at one of the local community colleges. I actually teach earth science about three miles away from the crime scene. And so curiosity piqued my interest, and I ran over and decided to take a look at it. Turned out I had a student in my class, Lo Daniels, who I know you've interviewed a couple of times. I brought it up to him, and he had some really cool insights. Next thing I know, uh, I dropped that stuff on the fan page. People responded positively for the most part to it. And uh, I said, well, maybe I could be a good surrogate. Maybe I do have a few skill sets that are valuable. So it kind of brought me into this. And I mean, we've been doing the best we can with what little data we have so far. Yeah, and it's it's so incredible. And this is, you know, the whole idea, I guess the whole theme to this episode is just the the power in a real crowdsourced grassroots movement like this is that you just never know when you, who thinks, you know what we need for this criminal investigation a geologist and a science professor. <laughs> like, that's what we need. Uh, but, but you know, as, as I've always said, you never, like, everybody has a skill set, and there's going to come a time when we're going to need it. For example, in the last week, who would ever thought I needed licensing attorneys? But we had them when we needed them, you know? So it's incredible. We're super glad to have you on board, Paul. And let me move over then to Miss Jill Gillis. Uh, Jill, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a uh, musician and music teacher living in College Station, Texas, and I guess that I was one of those people who always listened to the podcast and just kind of thought, well, those skills don't really translate into helping Bob at all, but um, I really got kind of brought into this when uh, one of the first episodes when you were kind of introducing, you know, what happened in the case and how Kiel, you know, she worked at the school and this happened on the school grounds. And I actually used to teach also at a university in Virginia and then um, also as a middle school music teacher in Virginia as well. And so my brain just started going into overdrive about, you know, how this could even happen on school grounds on a morning, you know, in my mind, I already realized it was probably summer school going on. So I think that was the first initial click that kind of drew me into digging a little bit more. And then when I found out that Kirby uh, was supposed to attend A&M uh, that fall right after the murder, I was like, I, I have to look into this because that's the town we live in. We live in the, mm -hmm. the same town as uh, Texas A&M University. Well, that's awesome. And so we have a geologist and a musician that are cracking the case right now in Pleasant Grove, Dallas. <laughs> you know, you have basically an artist, you have a scientist. We've got the whole range right here on the phone. Yeah, right brain and left brain, both right yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and, and Jill and I have been, as a matter of fact, Jill and I were, me, her, and Mike were on a FaceTime call just about a month ago because when we got into the Grove Rats investigation, she started doing some research and it was just, <laughs> she was emailing a couple questions back and forth and it all of a sudden I got to a point and said, um, Jill, you know more about these people than I do now. Uh, we need to get on the phone so I can catch up. <laughs> 
which is exactly the way this is supposed to work. And, and you know, I had this this conversation with Mike today, and he's like, he's like, Bob, you're bringing these guys on. Some, like, I think they know a little bit more about some of these areas that you do. And I'm like, that's awesome. That's what's supposed to happen. You know, because I, I can't I can't cover every little thing. And I certainly can't walk out to the crime scene and take measurements and figure out which trees might have been where, you know, in 1991 on a daily basis. Uh, so it's 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 awesome to have you on board. And I, and I guess that's where we want to start, because Paul, as a geologist, put a lot of time and energy into trying to reconstruct the crime scene as far as exactly where Kia was at. And on that, a lot of it, what kind of got this discussion started was in this week's past episode uh, last week. I talked about how we had kind of narrowed down some of the timelines and 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 Paul had said that, you know, maybe some of that doesn't quite line up with some of the information you had. So I'll, I'll let you kind of take it away, Paul, and tell us, you know, what you figured out. And I'll try to interject with you anything that I might know that either goes with that or against that. And let's see where we end up. Are you talking about with respect to the timeline? Either one, the timeline and the crime scene as far as, because one of the things you did, you, you've made some visuals about exactly where Kiao's final resting place was. Yeah, so that is actually something I've been trying to work on. Adam Pesarek, who is another person on the uh, the fan page, who has just got incredible attention to detail. Absolutely. He is on the ball. <laughs> yeah, no, th- nothing gets by him. He's super sharp and detail-oriented, and he pointed out a couple of things, and I had a couple of things. I started putting stuff together, and uh, the data that we had was he would, had watched a video in fact, it was your YouTube video, the one that you posted to promote uh, the podcast for this upcoming season. And in it, you mm-hmm. have your Exhibit 5, which you hadn't released yet. So we actually stole a screenshot off that. We had been staring at that thing for a month and a half. I was wondering where you got that when you emailed that to me earlier today. I'm like, I don't remember releasing that. It wasn't for anything being secretive. It was just such a shitty, grainy picture that it was. there's was nothing you couldn't see but from it, except you could. We did. In fact, we, we, we did uh, all kinds of image enhancements, and we pulled a lot of information off that thing. It, you've released two crime scene photos, and uh, it, it will blow your mind how much we were able to accomplish just off those two photos. So if you want to release the rest of us, uh, you know, to the rest of us, we're, we're happy to take them. But uh, we actually pulled it down to within two locations of where Kiao was. She was either going to be located uh, just behind the vacant property where the gap is located, which is still in eyesight of the uh, Stanbury property, or she was going to be straight out. And unfortunately, you know, I started digging into this. I mean, I've got some data now that I didn't have then. Um, so we're, we had to basically make a judgment call. She's either just slightly south of Stanbury or she's literally straight out from him. And it looks like uh, she's actually down to the south there. So my graphics were really just based on a judgment call based upon shadows. I mean, we literally went out and, I found aerial photos that showed tree shadows extending across from that vacant property over and from Sandbury's property. And I really got it down to two trees. And it looks like I just picked the wrong tree. Yeah, I was, I was watching some of the live videos because there was you know, a meetup of a bunch of you this past weekend where you all went out to the crime scene. It's just fascinating. I'm, I'm listening to you explain. Yeah, we figured out where it was because, you know, there was a shadow in that image. And from the aerial images in 1991, the shadow projected here or here or here. And, and seam lines in the road. It was just, it was really impressive. And I, is it, one of the things I want to ask you is, where did you find 1991 aerial images? So I compiled it actually from a couple of places, but I knew where the, where the Tarsons were that they're engineered into the road. So those are permanent structures and they're in the photos. So we didn't really have to worry about that. But I had uh, some interesting images for trees and things like that, Landsat images. A lot of it's all declassified stuff. I didn't want to use anything 
you know, I didn't want, I didn't have all the, the high processing software at home to do this stuff or just sleuthing for fun. So a lot of it was just using uh, just the aerial photographs that are available on Google Earth. There's actually historical images that clearly go back to 95 that you can pull up. I actually used a 2001 base image and then modified that based upon 1991 historical records, data, and testimony. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of hours. <laughs> I, I know. And I, I actually felt really so a little behind the scenes. I felt I felt really bad because we Paul kind of shared some stuff with me today, you know, prepping us for to do this discussion. And I sent him a couple of pictures that had never been released. And I feel like you kind of had a like a, a well shit feeling when you saw the couple of extra pictures. The thing that just killed me was it was one of my two positions and the, the red herring. There's two red herrings, it turns out, in the data that we had that put us up in the wrong spot. If we had didn't have these two red herrings, we would have actually nailed it, which is pretty amazing considering we only have these the, the one screenshot and then the one picture you put. We were able to do it, you know, within two spots. Uh, the two red herrings were the, the picture, you know, when you said that this is a photograph that is taken in front of where she was found. Well, it turns out that it's not. There, it's not directly in front of where she was found. It's a little further up by the Stanbury Gate. So that that became a problem. But it, the issue that really fed into my mind on that was the uh, paramedic gave us a measurement of 20 to 25 yards. And he just, I, I, I don't know where he came up with that number because it does not fit in any way, shape, or form no. the reality on the ground. I kind of weighed that with, uh, because I've been the medic rolling up on the scene doing that. And it's the last year, you, you, after the fact, you're like, oh, how far away were we? Um, so I kind of went off more on Daniel Cannon, who actually did the crime scene investigation that said they were 15 feet away from the gate. Yeah, my, my problem with Cannon's testimony was, and this is the reason why I didn't take it, was he was a third-hand witness to where the body was. And he always referenced the fence, but the questions were about the gate. So the attorney would ask, or the prosecutor would ask about position with respect to the gate. And he would respond with the position relative to evidence on the fence. So he never used the word gate, and that just kind of messed with my mind as I'm going through this because it's just a complete conflict with the uh, with the paramedic. Right. I- I'm wondering. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If we may have some gate positions wrong, because uh, I, I actually talked to Danny Stanbury again today. And I asked him, I, you know, where was the gate at? And he told me, no, her body, he said, was directly behind his yard. And then he also said that gate was also directly. He said, you know, it was it was maybe not perfectly straight, but he said he went out of his gate and would go straight across to the gate in the school, which is not where uh, we had kind of pictured them in, in one of the diagrams that you had made. But you had also, I think at one point, it said that there were no posts between the gates back then. And you saw in that one photo today yep. that there were. 
Yeah, my impression was always prior to seeing the stuff you had put together that there were actually three gates in that stretch of fence and not two. Yeah, that's something I definitely need to go and dig into. And I, I mean, now that I have this information, it's really hard to see a gate from an aerial photograph because you're looking straight down on it Mm -hmm. um, or nearly straight on it. So what you're really doing is you're looking for shadows being cast onto the sidewalk or into the field from the gate. And if the sun isn't at five o'clock or at 10 o'clock in the morning, you're not going to see shadows at all. Right, right. Um, So it it really made it a nasty endeavor. The closest that we could get, the reason why we concluded that it didn't have a central pole back then was because we took the, uh, we noticed that one of those gates was in the image. And we also took uh, Royster's, you know, back of the envelope map. And he shows up there's, you know, the gate at Stanberry's, another one in the middle, which we labeled the missing gate. So Mm -hmm. you might see that in some of the posts. And the one up in the corner. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And, and at the end of the day, we're kind of almost splitting the hairs when we're talking about putting this diagram together. But the part that is so impressive to me is, number one, the amount of time and energy that you guys put into this. And just the abilities that you guys have, like I said, tracking from shadows and camera angles and, and all these different things to kind of get an idea of exactly where things were laid out. It was just so super impressive to me. This conversation that you guys are having right now is just so reminiscent of the conversations that Paul and I would typically have at like one or two o'clock in the morning by a instant messenger. But one of the things that's so great about Paul is that he has put in all of this effort. I mean, this guy drives around with survey equipment in his truck, so he's, he's always looking. <laughs> right. I don't know if he mentioned how much time he spent out there. He told us he would some days go out there and eat lunch and just kind of watch things and think about things and... You know, there were many, many times where I would send him, you know, like a side-by-side photo of a, a modern picture that he just took recently, and like that, what we call the tire photo from back in 1991, and I would have scribbled on there and, you know, red markings, there's a, a concrete lip, and it just didn't 100% line up, and Paul is just super respectful, and he is just like me, he's not really married to any one idea, so... You know, as far as things being a little bit off from what we saw yesterday when we all got together at the meetup, I mean, I think it's still just amazing that he was able to get super, super close because, I mean, he really has put a ton of time into that. Yeah, and the visual aid graphics are amazing. And maybe we can get, um, now I can get Paul the rest of the, the pictures and we can come up with a nice, accurate rendering of the crime scene and where things are at. I, I, I'm frustrated. I'm hoping... Um, as of last week, Dallas PD said that they are, they have my open records request ready. I sent them a check. They're supposed to be mailing it to me. And I'm really hoping that the rest of the crime scene photos are there. The only thing they shouldn't be able to send me are pictures that depict like Kiel's body, but her body was gone by the time they got there. So that shouldn't be an issue. And I know there was a lot more photos. And we also, um, from looking at the tire photo, I think that was another late night discussion we had. Something that caught my attention was that I believe the gentleman in that picture actually has a video camera. And so if the Dallas PD would include a video of the crime scene, that would be great as well if, if you can get your hands on that. Yeah, I did see that too. And that would be awesome. But I have a hunt that's probably a news organization because I, I did a little shadow reading there too. And that appears to be several hours after that when that, that photo with the guy with the camera after the crime mm-hmm. occurred. So I'm guessing that was later in the day when the news were there, just, you know, videoing yeah. the detectives and still that's, walking that's, around. I just remember reading through the testimony and I forget who it was that was talking about how they had this, the crime being taped off and there's absolutely no tape in that photo. So I kind of figured it was probably well after the fact, but if we can find any footage from anybody, that would be great. 
Well, I, I'm hoping, and maybe this is a good place to ask, to find someone. And I've had a few people that do have some connections with some of the local news agencies there in Dallas. But if anybody has any kind of connection, there was news footage. We do know that. And I've been trying to get a hold of some kind of archive footage for, well, since we began this case. So if anybody's got any strings to pull, uh, I would love to have, a, have them pull those strings for us. Um, but before we spend too much time on kind of reconstructing where things were at, more, I think, importantly to me is I just started doing this reconstruction of a timeline for Kiao. And I know Paul and I think you, Jill, along with him, have kind of done the same thing. And so I, I guess all the listeners heard my timeline last week. And and so if you can, and you've heard that too, Paul, so if you can kind of chime in on that yep. and see if there's anything that you think that does line up or anything that's that's different from what I had said and, and where should we make edits to that timeline. There's two kind of major edits that I noticed. When we're dealing with Gladys Blanford and her observation of Kiao walking, she didn't actually observe her at 7.05, but it's in the same paragraph in the notes as where she mentions being active at 7.05. At 7.05, she actually identifies the location or identifies a unidentified black male acting strangely, walking up the street, and the, the officer notes that that's Mill Valley. The, the problem with that is, is that Gladys Blanford's garage is actually on Apache, and it would have been right over there on the side. So whoever this, this male is at 705 is who she notes and reports to the police. And, of course, we also have to keep in mind, we don't know who this male is. The assumption the police makes was that it was Moffat, right. which didn't check out. So that's kind of problem number one with that is she then leaves and then she sees Kiao sometime after 705 uh, on her way. And all we know is, is that somewhere between 705 and 715. But I think it's, you know, within a minute of 705, you know, 706 or something like that. And if she's if she's doing 15 minute miles, those are I mean, she's four miles an hour. That's real fast. Kind of your typical workout rate is about three and a half miles an hour to three. And that would put her solidly on September walking in a clockwise fashion. So she would have been basically right behind Stanberry again, uh, right around 7.05. Yeah, it's it, it's all de- dependent upon how fast Kia was walking. Like I know when I, when I walk on the treadmill, when I'm warming up, I'm at two and a half, three miles an hour. But once I'm, you know, started, if I'm walking for exercise, I'll crank it up to four miles per hour or four and a half miles an hour. And after four and a half, I'm, I'm jogging my, my big old butt chomping around the treadmill is jogging at 45, at 4.5. <laughs> but if it four is, is a really fast walk. So again, it kind of goes to the same thing as far as Cesar Espinosa saying he saw her at 720. Well, okay. So was it, was it 721? Was it 719? Was it 722? You know, for him, it's about 720. So, you know, we, we can't just, we can't make just a, a super accurate. We can put all this stuff together, just like Gladys Blanford. And and I, I must be thinking of, um, Paul, I don't know if you can direct me to or, or remind me of where the Gladys Blanford statement was. I have the, the statement I was reading when I was doing the episode yesterday or last week, excuse me. Okay, I actually have it right in front of me. Davidson contacted Blanford at work at 8.50 a.m. Blanford said that as she was leaving home for work July 25th, 1991, around 7.05 a.m., she saw a strange acting black man walking up her street, Mill Valley. Officers Welsh and Marceau saw the person Blanford was talking about shortly after they finished talking with Mrs. Bonner. Okay, Paul, was that the same uh, section you were talking about that you were kind of going off of? Yeah, yeah, I was just taking off that, just saying she's, she's the male at 7.05, and then she sees Kiao shortly thereafter walking. 
Right, because a couple, a couple lines above that, it says it was actually, unfortunately, it's like double hearsay. It was uh, Mrs. Bonner, who's her mother, that said said that Gladys said that she saw Keow between seven and seven fifteen a.m. Uh, then it goes down where she said it was at seven o five when she was leaving for work when she saw the strange acting black man, and it says Mill Valley. But you, so your your kind of contention there is that the strange acting black man would have been walking on Apache rather than Mill Valley, or near the intersection. Some yes. Yeah, and I think that uh, that is likely true. We do have to remember, though, we got to we can't we can't jump too far with any you know assumptions because we're assuming that because she's leaving for work, she's leaving out of her garage. But it's just like when Mr. Espinoza says seven twenty, you know, that could have meant she was grabbing her keys from the kitchen and looked out the window towards Mill Valley and saw him walking too. So we can't you know just when she says as she was leaving, she saw him doesn't necessarily mean she was in her car. Um, but ultimately, what we know is. She she saw a strange acting black man uh, who was believed to be Robert Moffat right then. Yes, that that's who the police uh, uh, immediately believed to be Moffat. From the notes, it seems like what the officers in the field are doing is they're actually calling into headquarters. Headquarters then gets actually on the phone. This is back before cell phones, so they're they're radioing in. He's making a phone call to Blanford. Blanford conveys information back to Davis, who then radios it back to the gentlemen uh, that are interacting with the Bonners. So the issue as far as um, what I had put down in my timeline was was kind of that it didn't necessarily mean that Blanford saw Kiao right then at her house at 7.05, but likely, you're assuming what, that she saw her as she was driving to work? Uh, yes, that she's just walking. That she's not necessarily right in front of Espinosa's at 7.05. That, that's really all I'm saying. Right, okay. So the, the one, as far as Espinosa, now you had, I think you were one of the ones, Paul, that had pointed out to me that Cesar Espinosa actually told us what direction Kiao was walking. That was Adam and I both working together. Yeah, Adam found that little tidbit in the uh, in the notes, and he had, he says, said, it's too bad we don't know where the Espinosas live. And I said, hey, I used to work in real estate. Let me dig that out. And sure enough, we had it, and we posted it, I think, within 12 hours of discovering that. We just we confirmed it and reconfirmed it, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was that was good work. I, I had to go through the same type of process to apparently I'd missed that discussion on the fan page. I think somebody had pointed <laughs> out that it was in there somewhere. I had, I had heard that someone had pointed out that she they said they walked towards September. And the frustrating part for me is like, how the hell did Paul, the the real estate geologist guy, can figure it out? Bob, the fireman can figure it out. Why couldn't Detective Royster figure out what direction she was walking? <laughs> you know, no, yeah, that's right. We put we put more work into this just on our little meetup the other day. Yeah. Right. So any other uh, points as far as that that you would kind of concur with or disagree with as far as the timeline we put together last week, Paul? No. Uh, well, there's uh, just on the other end. So bracketing the front end where she is on the back end, you're, you're putting her what seems to be a little late for me on, uh, on account of Marceau's testimony. Marceau being the, the first officer on the scene, uh-huh. uh, he testifies that he's there right around 730. That he, that he got there at 730. Right. But that's now I'd have to to go back through and withdraw, look at the other records, but I think that he is incorrect on that. They were there later than that, I believe. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of spitballing, kind of where this stuff is. Danbury says loosely 7:30 is when he called, but you're right. The nearest five minutes is kind of where people are throwing it around. Yeah, hang on. Um, I'm going to go ahead and hit pause right here for the listeners because I, I have a document that may answer this, and it just occurred to me, and I want to check it really quickly. Okay. Okay, I just took a quick check of a few reports, and we still don't have an exact time when the paramedics arrived on scene, uh, but I do have a document that shows that the dispatch time for the ambulance was 740. 
So I would assume having been in that business getting and knowing where the ambulance was coming from, they probably arrived on the scene right around 745 is what I would guess. Yeah. Um, so knowing that, and we were just discussing while the, the mics were turned off for a minute, that it's just Paul was talking about how miraculous it is that we've been able to piece this together with such sloppy information. And what I was about to say was the frustrating part is that we have to. I mean, th- this is stuff that the police should have figured out. It's it, We should have reports that have the exact dispatch time, the exact arrival time. Uh, we should have a, a, a diagram with a drawing that shows the exact position of Kiao's body. Uh, we all, all these things we should have, and we just don't. But thankfully, we're, we have been able to, and I'm, I'm, again, impressed that you guys have been able to piece all this together. I mean, we, we've, we've recreated a timeline, all of us together, just based on random witness statements and redacted documents. I mean, that's, that's pretty damn impressive. It's an interesting thing for me because just I know the amount of time that I have put into certain aspects of this and obviously the amount of time that Paul has as well. But it's like, this is not our full-time job. You know, this is a job that the detectives, and, and they should have been doing this back then. And it's just so sloppy. And it just speaks so much to how things worked out the way they did with Jesse being arrested and convicted. It's just, it's ridiculous. There's no excuse for it. Yeah, and it, it, it is crystal clear that uh, Detective Watts just had nothing in mind other than Number one, closing his case, and for some reason he had a hard-on for Jesse. And I don't know if that's because he wanted the case closed or if there was some sort of vendetta because of his criminal history. I don't know. But Watts, by all accounts, is not a stupid man, and it would take a real idiot to believe Troy Eldridge's story. And I don't don't believe that was the case. I always go back to the conversation that Mr. Gove had with the detectives where he actually, and maybe we'll get into this then, but where he kind of, pointed them in the direction of Ronnie Blackwell, and they just responded with a, well, without an eyewitness, we can't do anything. And I I really Mm -hmm. just think that he jumped at the chance for any eyewitness. He didn't care who it was or what they were saying. That's just what he wanted. Yeah, that's a good observation. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of Ronnie Blackwell, that's something I want to get into. So I think this is a good place. We're, We're a long ways into this to take a break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll come back and we'll get into Ronnie Blackwell and some of that situation. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, uh, back from our break and on our break, we discussed a couple things. And one thing that Paul wanted to clear up is the, the graphic that I put out that had the addresses listed. Well, there was some conflict there because I have addresses where Royster says he knocked on doors and some of those don't actually exist in reality anymore. And Paul did some research back then. So I had had said there were six houses to the north of Stanbury's. And Paul, how many do you think there were actually to the between Stanbury's house to the north all the way up to Grady? There's four and there's a gap between the one all the way to the north and and the next one down. It looks like he went two doors north of Stanbury's, knocked the one right next to Stanbury's, knocked and then went south from there and never even went up north. That's right. Okay. 
two of those uh, areas we have in that graphic that we have up are not exactly correct there because there were vacant lots back then. That's right, which just makes more places to stash a, a car or a, a killer. Right, right, sure. Now, getting back into what we were going to talk about in this segment is uh, something that I find very interesting. And I and I had picked it up just by cross-referencing a bunch of documents. And just really, I mean, there's so many, I've read so many thousands of pages. You know, you kind of go into uh, blinding mode. And all of a sudden I pick up, it's like, wait a minute. Why is Rosie Simon's name on this document? Wasn't she on that other document? And what does she have to do with Ronnie Blackwell? And kind of put two and two together. And Paul, you said this is a conclusion you and Adam had come to as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it, it's be clear from JJ or uh, Jesse James Swindell's uh, testimony that they're headed to uh, Ronnie's girlfriend's house, and I think it was in—I don't remember exactly where it was—where it was revealed that this was uh, where Rosie Simons lived. Right, which is actually Kiao's direct neighbor to the west. Kiao was at nine seven one seven, and what we've called Simmons this whole time, which I didn't realize, is there is a spelling error in all of these reports. Her name is actually Rosie Simons, S I M O N S, right? That's right. Okay. Now, was that, I'm trying to remember where I picked that up from. So that was in Jesse James Swindell. He, he pointed that out. He pointed out that they were looking for Ronnie's, they're looking for Ronnie at Ronnie's, at Ronnie's girlfriend's house. And then later on, I don't know if it was in the testimony or whether it was in one of the notes. I have to be refreshed on this. It's made explicit. Somebody says, so you made it over to the Simmons house or something like that. Right. Or Simon's house. <laughs> See, I, I'm now regurgitating Royster's air as well. Right, right, yeah, and I had picked up there were there were several documents that had cross referenced where it pointed that out. So, how do you think Ronnie Blackwell plays into this? And and Jill, jump, feel free to jump in too because I know you've got some thoughts on this too. Yeah, actually, I, I would like to hear what Jill's thoughts are first because I have some supplemental stuff. But we brought it to Jill when Adam and I put it together because it was keeping us up. I, I'm not even gonna lie. I mm-hmm. think Adam and I put in about. I mean, we're just cross-referencing. This can't be so. If so, then that Mr. That means Mr. Gove has direct communication with uh, Miss Gonzalez. So it, this is something that we were kept up about. We threw it over to Jill because Jill's the attack dog for this kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and she found she, she dug out some <laughs> cool stuff. What'd you find? Well, I, what was most interesting to me is I kind of fell into the Simmons trap at, at first as well because I remember and actually looked through uh, Paul our conversations on the night that this all kind of transpired and there is a Simmons that lives either like just at the end of Mill Valley Lane or up on that Grove Oak like right in that area and so when I kept seeing Simmons that's where I thought they lived because I had done some digging and that was the Simmons with two M's in the neighborhood. And so it never really clicked for me until talking to Paul that there was just a massive spelling error and it was repeated again and again and again throughout these documents. And as soon as he mentioned that, it just bells and whistles started going off. But um, we started digging into uh, the family members. So uh, we did some research into Rosa. I think her name was actually Rosa, but I could be wrong on that. But her and her husband and then also the children living in the house. And once we started to put together that that was the place where Ronnie's girlfriend was, within, I think, about 24 hours, I had the girlfriend. She was born the same year as Ronnie, went to first high school. So we, we now know who she is. So her name is actually... Um, and so she is, I believe, the youngest daughter of the three children that lived in that family. And she actually, her older brother, his name is... From what I could find out, he also was involved in racing cars, which anybody who's kind of listening to this knows that there's a lot of people that we have looked into and 
cars were a big thing back then. I mean, people were racing on the streets. They mm-hmm. would go to specific areas of Pleasant Grove and race. And, you know, so I know that her older brother was, was into that as well. I do know that she has friends via connections who are Grove rats, but they're not necessarily tied to the one Grove rat that we've been focusing on. The other thing that's interesting about her is that she does have some ties to KKK members, Peckerwoods, and some drug addicts and, and dealers. So we know for a fact that Ronnie was dating her and that she also has a lot of the same ties as him as far as white supremacists and some of these, uh, the Peckerwoods gang. So there's, there's some really interesting stuff in there. And then one of the other things that I just want to throw out there, I don't know exactly that it fits in with Ronnie, but dealing with the Peckerwoods, I had done quite a bit of research. And one of the things that I threw out to Paul one night was that white handkerchiefs in some Peckerwoods gangs are one of their gang signs. And that it could have potentially been extremely offensive to one of those gang members to see uh, an Asian woman walking around carrying that white handkerchief. So really? I just want to throw it out there. I don't have any proof of that, but I did read that, that that can be one of their gang signs, is that they'll stick a white, white handkerchief in their pocket or wear one tied around you know, their head or their neck. So that is definitely a possibility, but I'm you know, not giving it any more weight than anything else, but it's something to think about. Wow, that's really interesting. So Ronnie and the girlfriend... You said they were both in the same grade, both in the same class, correct? They were born the same year. But I also don't know, I can't remember if Ronnie was the one who actually dropped out of school. So they may not have been like attending at the same time, but they were born in the same year. So they would have at some point gone to school together. Right. I don't I don't think Ronnie did finish high school from the, just from the little bit of research that I've done on him. Uh, I tried to actually mm-hmm. talk to Jesse James Swindell. I reached back out to him a little while ago and, you know, asked him some questions about Ronnie. And he, his exact words to me were, I don't know, man, he's probably in prison. I don't speak to the family. Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did find out that Ronnie is currently in prison right now. How old were Ronnie and the girlfriend in 1991? They were born in 74. Yeah, that put him at 19 because I was born in 75. So they were 19 years old. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm very impressed that you were able to track down that name because that could be huge for us. Because as I've said many times uh, on the show, you know, the, the key is, you know, people look at these cases and they're like, oh, you'll never figure this out. No one's ever going to talk. Well, there's always somebody on the periphery of the case that is willing to talk. You know, somebody who knows something who doesn't has a lot more to lose than the people that are actually involved that, that might might be willing to speak. So that's someone that we're definitely going to be reaching out to. Um, now, did you find anything uh, between the two of you that one? Oh, I'll tell you, and you guys tell me what you think about this. I think you both know this. One thing that I found interesting once I made that connection between Simons and Ronnie Blackwell is the fact that Simons is actually the first person to make contact with the police with a lead. She calls, yeah. I believe, at yeah. like 12.15 on that day, so just a few hours after the murder, and tells police about the strange-acting black man. Yeah. Yes, my initial reaction to that was, and, and we did discuss that, I know we both kind of came across that, but I think my first question had been the timing of it. If she had made that call at 12.15, we know that right around noon, 
that was when the police officers came and got Kirby, if I'm, if I'm remembering things correctly. So there is a chance that she noticed what was going on, and, and I'm sure rumors were flying around the neighborhood already at that point, or depending who you talk to, if, if you think Ronnie's involved, that would have given her that, that kick she needed to go ahead and, and make a call and either push things in a completely different direction or speak truthfully, depending on how you view uh, her motives. Right. And of course, there's there's two things going on could be going on here. One, she saw a strange acting blackmail and that's just she was just trying to help or uh, maybe knew something else, something about someone else's involvement. And it was a forensic countermeasure. That was my gut feeling on it was that it was a forensic countermeasure. I think the police immediately descended on the area and began canvassing at the same time to tell Kirby. So they probably immediately said, oh, we don't know anything. And then within minutes, a phone because it's a phone call, I believe, that comes in. Mm-hmm. Not a not a face to face discussion. Right. Uh, they immediately go ahead and deploy this thing, and it, it screams forensic countermeasure to me because four months later, we're hearing a whole other set of stories, and Mama Judy, and then even in the notes, Mama Judy apparently seeks to change her testimony as well. You know, it's things get real slippery real quick. So the Z twenty eight story and you know Moffat uh, kind of coming under the microscope are both originating at the same house. Right. Well, to an extent, I mean, the fact that Blackwell obviously is connected with the Simons and Judy and Jesse were out looking for Ronnie. So that, yeah, there's, there's definitely a connection there. My, my thing with yep. the, with, with the Z28 as far as that story, uh, cause kind of what you're implying is that maybe the whole Z28 thing is a forensic countermeasure as well. No, no, I think it's still, I think it's still in play. I don't think it can be eliminated at all, but I, I definitely, think that they're in control of information is what I'm, I guess I'm trying to say. Right, right. Yeah, and, I, and I'd love to know how close that relationship was between Judy and Simons, because I don't know that there's much there. I, it's, it's, just, it's just hard to say, uh, because obviously it, it says that in, in several of the notes that Ronnie kept running away, and she kept um, going to get him and, and, tr- and looking for him at that house. So I I wonder how much of that, um, you know, how much connection they had to each other. Yeah, I mean, in that situation, I would think that if they had a, a super close connection, that she would have just parked and knocked on the door that morning instead of just driving laps around the neighborhood. So exactly. I, I don't know that I would, yeah, I don't know that I would buy that they had a close relationship, but I mean, we know for sure they knew who each other was. Right, yeah, most certainly. And, and then, and so then I wonder, because, you know, the, the white, the Z28 thing, you know, obviously is, is, is called into question because it's, you know, it, it fits with, you know, some scenarios and it's a complete or it could be a complete red herring. But, you know, like I explained in an episode several, several months back, uh, the I, the fact that, number one, I've spoke with Jesse James Swindell a couple of times and I've done some background checking on him. And I just at this date and this age in the in the in the man despises his cousin, Ronnie Blackwell, and that whole side of the family there's there's just no reason no motivation for him to lie about anything like that and he was super helpful and super happy to talk to me and i i i believe at least that he believes that he saw that i guess i could i should put it that way yeah i don't call into question personally what he saw i think that he saw an event that morning for sure so so that kind of brings us to do you guys have anything else on on Blackwell other than that cuz there's a lot of shit cuz there's there's notes all over the report where they want to talk to Ronnie because the, there was a I think a crime stopper stint and some of these are in documents that haven't come out yet uh but there was a crime stoppers tip you know cuz we're going to eventually get into Ronnie as a whole but uh where someone had called and said they were you know around Ronnie in a uh, a laundromat 
and he just keeps talking about this, and he seems to know an awful lot about this crime. So, so would you, you remember, I think I have mentioned on the show that Royster had said there was a Crime Stoppers tip that they believe was about Ronnie Blackwell. Yeah. And that maybe mm-hmm. that's why they were making up this whole story. Well, that was the, what the Crime Stoppers tip was. It was somebody that was just like, this. hey, this guy keeps talking about it. And they actually, the person didn't give their name and didn't want the reward. They said, I don't want the reward. I don't want to be involved with this. I don't want a number. I don't, you know, didn't, didn't get the Crime Stoppers number. Just said, you need to talk to this guy. That's what that Crime Stoppers mm-hmm. tip was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that Adam and I went back and forth on whether or not he might have put in a Crime Stopper tip himself. A Crime Stopper, as far as Blackwell putting in a Crime Stoppers tip about himself? Or, 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 well, I mean, for example, we don't know where he, he, he has no alibi that morning. Nobody knows where he is. Right. And why was he there that, why was he expected to be there that morning? Remember, there was a, there was a party at Jesse's house. Was he at that party? Right. You know, do we know the answers to these questions? You know, it, it, he, Jesse suddenly becomes a convenient guy to call the cops on. Right. So I, I don't know. I just, I, I know I'm spitballing it, but I mean, this is one of the kind of the conjectures that I have. It's not a theory, it's just a, it's a possibility. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of possibilities. So here's something I haven't also talked about. So I guess I'm releasing it now on the show is something Jesse told me is that his brother and he, primarily Troy, Jesse would just be there along, kind of along for the ride, used to buy meat out of a guy's car where they would, these guys would rob the local grocery stores and then show up and out of the trunk of their car would sell inexpensive, you know, they would sell, you know, like expensive steaks for cheap. You know, they'd have them in a cooler and whatnot. And he said that it was it was a couple of African-American guys driving a white Camaro. He said he didn't know if it was a Z28, but uh-huh. it was a white Camaro. And that they would, he said, because he only saw the back. He remembered the trunk. He remembers his Camaro. That's the car it was. But they'd open the trunk and, you know, the, and Troy would buy meat from these guys. And unfortunately, these are guys that Troy probably knows the names to, but Troy's not speaking to us. Uh, to give us information. So that's, you know, all of a sudden now we've got a white car with a couple of African-American guys. So we we don't, and we don't know who Ronnie Blackwell hangs out with other than the information that we got from that, uh, that other student, you know, that there was, I think they had said, you know, Chris Parks and there was a Sammy and uh, Chad Nelms, I think were the, yes. the three that he, yeah. that he hung out with. So um, I think that the, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to get long, but that is, that is definitely a path that we're starting to pursue because I have actually made contact with a few of the people uh, in the initial kind of Grove Rats circle that we were talking about originally. And um, some doors are starting to open, starting to get some more information. Uh, and so we're just going to keep on, keep on digging. I also, um, which we'll hear about next week, uh, made a call to the KKK. Oh God, you got, awesome. you got, <laughs> you got courage, man. <laughs> Before we'll just move right along from that, and before we uh, before we close this out today, the, another plausible alternate suspect that's been thrown around a lot on the discussion page. And I don't know, I don't know exactly how you guys feel about it, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. Is the idea of Kenneth Ray Williams being the suspect? So I want to just jump in and say that Paul had the greatest ideas about this to the point where I was on the edge of diving headfirst into the Kenneth Ray Williams camp. Um, and there was just one sticking point that I couldn't get past. And I, maybe I can talk about that after Paul explains kind of why he thought, you know, a lot more interest should be placed on Kenneth Ray Williams. But he has he really does have some great ideas on that. Okay, I'd like to hear the objection first so that I could step around it when I go through it. Oh. <laughs> 
the, <laughs> it's the same objection that I had had before, and it all ties back to Gladys Blanford and why you and I, and I know we, we were talking to Chris Brinkley yesterday as well about jumping on Bob to interview her ASAP, but she initially, um, in her statement when she speaks to the police after Mrs. Cornelius Bonner had pointed them in her direction, she merely stated that it was an un- unidentified black male. However, when you look at the notes that, that come later, when she's speaking about he was next door, so this is after the Tupperware party tip, and they went and interviewed her, and she made the comments about, you know, how him and his nephew would make lewd comments to her daughter, and she knew of him being there, and so she was much more familiar with him at that point. And my only sticking point was the fact that she had every opportunity in that news statement to place him there that morning as the gentleman that she saw. And she did not take that opportunity. And so for me, that's enough to push me away from him just because she did not specifically come out and say, you know what, I think it was him that morning, not this other unidentified black male. That's the only sticking point that I really had. Yeah, and the question would be, too, she she did indicate, that's one thing that I was going to point out, too, that she was intimately familiar with Kenneth Ray Williams. And so if she knew him because he's their neighbor, then why would she say mm-hmm. it, that she saw an unidentified black male? I think she would say, I saw my neighbor yeah. guy walking. So we've already started trying to shoot holes, uh, Paul. Let's hear what you got. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It, I, I have to admit, after some of the stuff that you sent me today, you know, Adam and I were going back and forth, just kind of spitballing what about possible suspects or whatever. And we were moving towards, for us, it's really more about multiple attackers versus single attackers and who are the best candidates for single attackers. And, you know, just kind of applying the, the principles of, you know, if you have a conjecture, we remember, we don't have nearly the amount of data that you have. So the amount of data that we have is very simple. It's very, it's very slushy. And so we're just applying Occam's razor to the whole thing. And basically we're just looking for the simplest explanations and only introducing complexity when it demands additional complexity. Right. And so when we do that, we look at it, uh, you know, we've referenced and, and thought really hard on some of the stuff that uh, your interviews with Jim Clemente kind of point out. And we're not completely sold on the idea that it had to be a multiple attack or multiple person attack. You know, if you have a struggling key out, you'll have different wound diameters and things. And, and, and Jim has mentioned that. I don't know if necessarily on your podcast, but he's mentioned it in other ones for sure. Yeah, he has on ours. And, yeah, I, I think so. That's what I'm remembering. So we're kind of like, you know, looking at this, how many knives were involved. I'm actually in the middle of plotting this. I'm still halfway through it. So, I mean, don't hold me to it. But if these openings are actually different knives, that means the killers were reaching across each other or, or taking turns, you know, that kind of thing going back and forth because distribution of these uh, irregular cuts seem to be uh, evenly distributed across her. So you don't have like a cluster of wide knife versus short knife. You know what I'm saying? Where one person is standing right. on the left and one standing on the right. So to us, that's ambiguous. Um, and so we're still kind of going with the single, you know, idea who was the identified blackmail? On the flip side, Moffitt was her long-term neighbor of Gladys Blanford, uh, also living on Mill Valley, two doors down to her northwest. And she doesn't identify it as the uh, as the reverend. So we just all, all we have is an unidentified blackmail. Right. Okay. Yeah. And with Kenneth Ray Williams, and, and that's yeah, I keep promising there's an episode coming. The reason I'm holding off is I'm cr- trying to track down the case documents from the the offense that he had after Kiao's murder, the one that put him in prison that he just got paroled for. Because I just don't mm-hmm. I don't have any details about that. 
for me, uh, Kenneth Ray Williams has one really bad thing going for him. And that is that he was asked if he killed Kiao and he said no. And he flunked the, the polygraph test. That being said, yes. I do not put a lot of weight into polygraphs. You know, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to say, you know, at the very beginning before we went through what we so far what we've done. But I'd love to have gone back to the very beginning and say, Jesse Eldridge passed a polygraph. He's innocent. Well, it, it's mm-hmm. it's not that easy. And of course, the D.A. didn't think so either. I, of course, I do believe 100 percent. I am I am positive that Jesse is innocent, uh, but not because of the polygraph. But for other than that, all we have from Kenneth Ray Williams is just that you know he lived there. Wait, he, he was d- there during that window. He is one of the biggest scumbags in Southern Dallas. He just have to be right 80 feet away from where this happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, he, it's, he's definitely like, and as I've said many times, I, I haven't written anybody off and I'm not like, I mean, there's there's a whole line of investigation that I've been going down with some new information I found over the last week that I'm thinking, oh, maybe that's not, you know, maybe we're wrong on that, which is then I'm glad we didn't put it out there. But that's, it's, that's just the nature of the beast when you're doing these cold cases is, you know, you get onto a lead, you know, like a, like a dog on a bone and you go after it until you find the place where it just dead ends. And so with Kenneth Ray Williams, I just haven't even begun yet. But so I would just break down and say, well, what do we know? You know, what do we, well, we know that he lived in the neighborhood, a couple of people that saw an unknown, uh, an unidentified black male acting strangely. Uh, so we know that. And then we also know that Robert Moffat used to act strangely when he walked. But Moffat's story doesn't quite add up either because, you know, he said he had to change. He couldn't go the direction he normally goes because of the police. But they weren't there to, for 45 minutes after he normally starts his walk. But uh, I digress yes. with that. But with Kenneth Ray Williams, that's really all we have. Ray, and somebody had said that you know he's, he's a serial uh, rapist because he has th- three counts on his on his record, so that makes it makes it serial. But you got to remember, we just three counts doesn't necessarily mean three different offenses either. Those was all could have happened at the same time. Oh yeah, so yeah. the court the court documents will bear that out. Yeah, right, sure. So. Uh, but, but any case, you know, and then I, and like you said, with you're, you're always looking at what's the simplest explanation. And it's just, and maybe it's just, for me, I, I think, you know, I've got two eyewitnesses that say that morning at that intersection, they saw a woman being drugged into or dragged into. I always get that wrong and I get correct on Twitter. Uh, they get dragged <laughs> into a white car and then, and then peel off. And then I have another witness who talks to a completely different group of people that say they saw her being drugged and dragged into a white car and then kicked out. And then, you know, uh, a world renowned profiler saying that, you know, this is your young criminally inexperienced. There's no motive here. Nothing makes sense. Uh, then I've got, you know, your student low Daniels. That's it, funny thing is that I take what he told me in our interview where he said that I think they just, they just going to grab her. You know, he said, they're just going to grab her. They didn't even have a plan. They're just going to just grab her and and beat her up. And then I listened to Sylvia telling me how people saw these kids, you know, kicking her out of the car and her crawling away while they're brutalizing her laughing. You know, my my emotions in that interview were real because I was thinking back to uh, the the evidence that we have. And I was thinking back to the Clemente interview and I was thinking back to what Lo Daniels said. And it's like, it just kind of hit me, you know, and, and it's nothing, it's not real evidence. It's a gut feeling, but it's just like, oh God, that's what happened. I don't know who did that, but that just feels right. So as, as far as I guess to, to put a button on me or my rambling for the last five minutes is, you know, to me, the simple solution is you got a whole bunch of people that they say, that say they saw this happen in a certain way and it would fit with the injuries and the crime scene. That seems to me right now to be the simplest explanation. But as we move forward, time will tell. 
but also as far as people keeping, you know, their minds open and, and their perspective wide on these things. I had spoken with a friend of mine who was a police officer, and it was a really interesting and eye-opening conversation that we had about most of us, if we, if we really knew uh, what our neighbors had done in their past or things they might be involved in, we would be a lot more concerned about our neighborhoods. And that's not just bad neighborhoods. That's good neighborhoods as well. You mm-hmm. never know who has had issues with drugs or domestic violence or assaults. And so, you know, putting weight on one convicted felon over another convicted felon is, is just a dangerous game to play. And, you know, that we have Kenneth, Kenneth Ray Williams. We have Jesse Eldridge. There were plenty of other convicted felons in that area as right. well. And so just making sure to keep the perspective open and, uh, you know, for people who are involved in the discussions on the Truth and Justice fan page, um, just make sure that, you know, if you're, if you're diving feet first into one camp and you're sticking to that, you know, you, you might want to open, open your mind a little bit and kind of just think about all the things that were going on in that area at the time. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's, it's actually a really good point, Jill, because if you really look at it, Jesse Eldridge has spent the last 23 years in prison because he was a convicted felon, because someone looked at yep. him as a target that could be blamed for this because of a past that he had. And and that's one thing that does lead a lot of times to wrongful convictions. And I have to say that I think it's really cool that the group of people discussing this has grown so much and people are so energetic and, and engaged about this case that we have camps now. How cool is that? <laughs> <laughs> And I think that is a perfect note for us to end this on. This is uh, right now because I've got to go out of town this week. So just a little behind the scenes. It is now in Michigan right now, quarter after 11 on Monday night. We're recording this and you can hear my voice is starting to finally fade away. So I'll stop talking by the time I get inside to my wife. But I want to thank uh, one more time very much so much for not not just coming on and talking to us today. I think it's been hopefully a good exercise, and hopefully everybody found this interesting, uh, or, or just the conversation. And I tried; I wanted this to kind of feel like a fly on the wall and what our real conversation feels like, and I think we accomplished that. But uh, not only for coming on, but also for the many, many hours. I know that Jill, Paul has made all these graphics and things, and I know that Jill has an actual nerd binder like I used to have with the Anon Syed case. <laughs> it, it has been verified, yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thank you, Paul, and thank you, Jill, so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Glad to do it. It was our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Okay. Well, you guys have a great night, and I'm sure we'll be talking again soon on the Truth and Justice podcast discussion page. Okay. Hopefully, you guys all appreciate that. I know that is very different than our typical episodes on Sunday mornings, but I thought that you would all find it really interesting. I know I did. It's just it's great to have these discussions and to listen in. And, and what we're trying to do is just to generate thought in people. And and someone is listening to this and knows a particular document or a particular crime scene photo that's up or something that is triggered by something that's going to lead us to better information and hopefully to connect us to more people. So I'm going to go ahead and sign off for tonight. I want to thank you again, all of you, so much for all of your support. Again, I'll ask you one more time, if you'd please just take two minutes out of your day, go onto iTunes and rate and review us. That will help to get us visible again in the iTunes charts and hopefully draw on some more listeners that can help engage and get involved in these cases. And moving on to next week, Mike and I have been very busy reaching out to a lot of people. Hey, Bob, this is James Long with the Lowell White Knight for the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK. I got your message. If you can, if you want to do a story, you can reach me at 336 336- 
432. Give me a good time to reach out and call you back at that time. Again, this is with the Little White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Michael Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Chris Brinkley for designing and creating and maintaining our website. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller. And as always, thank you so much to all of you for all of your support and engagement. And I look forward to talking to you all again next week. But between now and then, you can send us emails into theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can leave us a voicemail for the Friday follow-up at 269-224-2833. Like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.